House of Games, How Brain Science Explains My Traumatic Childhood by Donna Barrow. That's me, the author. House of Games tells the stories of my life, society, and the enduring effects of trauma. The podcast is a collage of narrative, interviews, research, and historical record. Each episode is somewhat self-contained, and you'll find some episodes are more audiobook in their style, read by me. Other episodes will involve interviews with family members, archival, historical records, and some episodes will focus on research and history. A theme, whether explicit or not, is neuroscience. The human brain has been a point of fear, fascination, and awe for me. You'll see my life has been delineated by neurological events. Both of my parents underwent brain surgery and had brain injury. Woven in and out of my life is a chaotic and elegant maze of the effects of these events on my own neurological development. All of this is contained in the House of Games. House of Games, How Neuroscience Explains My Traumatic Childhood by Donna Barrow-Green. This podcast is a collage of narrative, interviews, research, and historical record. Each episode is somewhat self-contained, and you'll find some episodes are more audiobook in their style, read by me, the author. Other episodes will involve interviews with family members, archival historical records, and some interviews will focus on research and history. Episode 1 is an audiobook format, Chapter 1 of my memoir entitled House of Games. Episode 1, Two Criminals. As an introduction, I don't need to delve deep into the emotional, psychological, or academic rationalizations. The best way at this point is to state it point blank and ask you to trust me on this one. If you choose not to, that's all right too. My parents, both of them, were criminals. I don't mean criminal, evil, child abusers, the interplay between trauma and my own psychological defenses. I mean it in the most pristine and unencumbered definition. They were criminals. You'll see. As for me, for the last year, I've been plagued with cognitive dissonance that has frozen my reality. It's there. I feel it. I feel the creativity and the feelings, but they are suspended. Suspended until this realization and all its tentacles work their way through my nervous system, my bloodstream, my consciousness, until the childhood schema, the idea that they were worthy of sympathy, not a negation of their actions, but rather a rationalization, a childish, non-analytical, unreasonable even, means to understand how I could love not one, but two monsters. Monsters and all their accomplices. The light outside is promising rays of warm sun. That's New England for you, cold, crisp, outside. But inside Dad's Cutlass Supreme, the spring sunshine spreads a warmth refracted through the windshield. Dad's Cutlass Supreme. Have you ever been inside a 1971 Cutlass Supreme? Oh man, it's a cool car. I didn't know exactly what cool was, But even a novice like myself recognized this new man my father had become. It's cliche now because I've written so often about his aviator glasses, sideburns, dress shirt replaced by silk, silk that clung to him. 
He'd acquired a handsomeness, but he still had what mom called Nana's butt and chin. Evidence for genetics, I suppose. But I could have told you they were mother and son, both cold and sociopathic, with what appeared to be no reason. And what of me? I'd like to think I wasn't psychopathic like my parents. Hard to believe that two such criminals could, I mean genetically speaking, create a child with empathy. Correction, three children. These two criminals created three children with empathy. Epigenetics? Hard to say. There wasn't much of a home life, more of a cesspool, I'd say. Okay, go ahead and judge. This is your time to judge. You don't know the whole story. You're eating your popcorn at a regular pace, I'm sure. There's no visible effect on your tempo or timing. There's no punctuation. It's one popped kernel after another. But you'll see. You'll see. The car. Let's stay with that for a moment. I'll let you know I've spent many, many years, indeed, all of my years, likely I've spent them all looking for the truth. Big mistake. I should have followed the lie. That's what I'd heard a journalist say. When you want to get to the bottom of things, follow the lie. I could chart it all, all of the lies, veins like an ant farm or botanical illustrations. Yes, the lies hold us below the surface of the earth, secure. As rotten as they were, they had strong roots. For my mother, it was a tangled, chaotic system below the ground. They were wires crossed, neurons and connections, or even some sort of adaptation, with roots damaged in places entangled in others. Yes, a living tree. Yes, DNA, but really lacking. Wait, is that right? Yes, I question because you'll see my old myths emerge, rising to the surface, just slowly enough that you won't notice. No, my belief was that they were ill, to be pitied. They both were to be forgiven, nurtured, loved, and excused. They were both to be defended, and my face, the mirror they most often consulted, showed nothing but adoration. But neither of my parents had use for children over 11, so my power of absolution lost potency. Still, I was useful as a scapegoat and other things too. The car. We were sitting in Mammoth Mart parking lot. Both of us in the Cutlass Supreme, the car seemed to have a raised rear, just a little, like one of those barmaids where my dad worked on weekends. My dad, the chemist. My dad, the bartender. Yes, they'd hold their bottoms just like that, a nod to the days of burlesque or even ballet, some evolutionary mating signal. The inside, though, he had the model with the bucket seats, black vinyl. He had a leather steering wheel cover, rawhide sewn. He wore leather gloves in the winter, black too, and sometimes a trench coat. Hold up, my father was the kind of man who, by today's reckoning, would, could, have shot up a concert or workplace. The man I describe here is part of the story. He's the man in love with the little girl. He's the man who sneaks up behind and tickles and giggles. He's the man who pretends to spank, pulling down pants and clapping hands together to convince mom my bottom is bare and his hand is slapping my five-year-old flesh. But that's not here nor there. By the time he'd bought all the guns and locked them in the cardboard trunk, red, white, and blue, with a flimsy key and an equally flimsy brass frame, by the time he was capable of blind rage and murder, he was a silent man in public. 
he grew more and more self-conscious, even asking for help in a store. His face and his jaw clenched so tightly, furious eyes, sharp looks, rage. But in Mammoth Mart on that day, cold outside, as I said, this is very, very characteristic of Massachusetts in April. You see the crocuses and daffodils, particularly the ones that burst into yellow, dense spikes all along our driveway. The previous owner's doing, but you know how tubers are. They multiply underground, growing, knobby connections to one another. Sometimes when too dense, the flowers stop blooming, but not our daffodils. I loved, loved, loved them. Those and the rust-colored mums with equal precociousness, prolific. The flowers in our tiny yard around our tiny house in our 1970s suburban neighborhood where people just wanted to raise a family. Police cars and drunks, present company included, screaming and breaking things. Breaking in, that was dad's trick, breaking into our house despite my mother's barricades. Was my mother a victim of domestic violence? You wouldn't know it with the hurricane of chaos that raged every day and night relentlessly like those haunted houses in the 1980s horror movies. A sinister humming so palatable that I burned with terror overnight as the hurricane broke through glass and wood as it grew closer outside my door until finally fists broke through the hollow core door of the bathroom, my mother screaming but offering her share of violence. If there was an island, it was our canopy bed. My sister and I communicated with our eyes, both of us feeling so guilty that we left our brother out at sea, five years younger, all alone in a small bedroom, just feet away. Yet it was too treacherous to venture down the hallway. I would have entered the storm, the blind rage of my father, a man who returned home from work at lunch, stormed into our house, kicked the dog across the room, screaming, screaming, pulled his penis out of his pants, threw the mortgage bill on the floor, and pissed on it. I think he didn't have money to pay the bill. Today, in my field of mental health, where I teach students about trauma, we would say this is a lack of self-regulation. Something wrong in the stress response system, or maybe the prefrontal cortex was impaired, and he didn't have impulse control. So, you're starting to get a profile of my father, a man who met the qualifications of mass shooter. To recap, loved young girls until they became pre-adolescent. Loved them. Showing a glowing, affectionate twinkle in the eye. All that. More to come. A man who collected handguns and kept them in a cardboard box. A man, you'll find out later, who sold drugs, mostly cocaine, and then ran the drugs to Boston. A man with debilitating social anxiety coupled with a furious rage when in the presence of the vulnerable. Oh, more to come. Sitting in Mammoth Mart, by the way, have you ever heard of or been in a Mammoth Mart? Picture this, New England, 1971. My memory is a vague sentimentality as if I could simultaneously see through my father and my mother's eyes while I'm looking through my own. Why? Survival. Over-empathy. Self-preservation. It seems their psychology shadowed my own. Indeed, I lived in the shadows. This is telescopic, but we'll start with Mammoth Mart, then the Cutlass, then my dad, then back to the day in the Mammoth Mart parking lot. The story will find its way if I follow the lie. Mammoth Mart. If you Google it, you'll see it as I did. 
and I don't particularly remember much about the signage, still heavily influenced by 1950s typography, part curved, part deco, or more accurately, in font speak, Futura, Urbar Greek, Century Gothic, yet edited with the burgeoning 1960s, Impact Cooper Black. Searching for Mammoth Mart on the internet, I am distraught. I can't find it in New Bedford. It's Fairhaven, which for geographic accuracy isn't such a deviation. But memory, that's another matter altogether. I remember, that's the point. I remember the parking lot and the standalone department store. That's the way they were back then. No strip mall, certainly no mall. Just a store, a discount store with a big elephant sign bearing a dying typeface. Still, I search Google and can't find Mammoth Mart in New Bedford. Well, I found one referenced by a man in his internet memoir blog who claims to have worked at Mammoth Mart in New Bedford. For now, I'll assume there was a Mammoth Mart and move on, but not without mentioning Marty the Elephant, a mascot I do not remember, an elephant in a blazer, large as the letters. At first, I think we wouldn't do that now, use an elephant, a Barnum Bailey's influence back then with no ethical qualms about incarcerating wild animals in small cells. I think we wouldn't use a fun elephant, anthropomorphized, as a store manager or a businessman. But then look at Chuck E. Cheese and Jack in the Box, big round clown head in a business suit. That's weird, right? Moving forward, closing remarks on Mammoth Mart. All New Bedford discount stores in the 1970s. Buildings were stark, lighting dim, dingy, describes them. My memory is the dusty floor of a 1940s shop. Wood, air smelling dry. But again, those are my parents' memories. In reality, what should have informed my senses, fluorescent lights, bins and bins of factory seconds, the beginning of cellophane wrap. The Cutlass, white on the outside, black on the inside black top. This is from my memory, mind you. I'll Google it in a bit. Bucket seats, radio, bench seat in the back. I'm always in the front. That's what we did. We went on many, many drives together. In fact, it was customary for me to go everywhere and do everything for and with my dad. I was told I was his favorite, special. It made me special to serve him, to listen to him as he smoked and drove around the city, driving everywhere, telling me his innermost thoughts. What were they? Politics, marital problems. We talked like friends until I became cognitively closer to his equal. I'm speaking of adolescence. Dad didn't like anyone with an adult mind, certainly not an adult body, certainly not a woman. Mammoth Mart was one of the many drives and stops, stops to talk, private conversations, sometimes about his affairs, sometimes about the stress of it all, the rat race, being a chemist, running drugs. These were secrets, of course. It was hard, as you might imagine, for a 10-year-old to keep her father's secrets. And when I didn't, this is the Mammoth Mart parking lot now. Oh, it was bad when I didn't. The Cutlass. A 1969 Cutlass Supreme, white exterior, black top, bucket seat, streamlined shape. I don't remember if there was a stick shift. I couldn't testify to that in court. But there was a console, and it separated Dad and me. It was between the two bucket seats, between us. No seatbelts, so I could move to the center, lean close, touch his shoulder or arm until he found it disgusting. Too much of a mirror. This was no place 
to reflect my father's feelings back to him. I could testify that the console's inner box compartment could be pulled out and then underneath you could find a bag of weed. Or, as I found out in my adolescence, when he'd long ago rejected me, a bag of weed laced with something that got you so fucked up, the laughter started in your muscles and convulsed in hysterical shockwaves throughout your body until it was finally released in tears. These cascading waves of stoned consciousness for hours or minutes Time was so irrelevant. It wasn't time at all. And that is the moral of this paragraph. That is how a girl escapes the shittiest life in New Bedford, Massachusetts. And keep in mind, New Bedford has been voted one of the top 10 most dangerous cities in Massachusetts and the top 10 worst places to live in Massachusetts every year for decades. So the shittiest life was phenomenal. Indeed, I did live the shittiest life. What kind of man drives a 1969 two-door Holiday Coupe Cutlass Supreme with bucket seats and a console in the middle with a removable compartment where weed and other drugs can be stored? What kind of secret life does a middle-class chemist living in a small three-bedroom suburban track house have? Who leads double lives? Follow the lie. In my father's case, it's the mask of a sociopath. Because what I didn't recognize was the distinctive emotional topography of a sociopath. If you imagine emotions as a script, not a feeling, and yourself as the puppeteer behind your affect, there it is. A man cannot, and I believe this quite sincerely, a man cannot keep guns in a cardboard box, hide ammunition in heating ducts, punch holes in the walls of a house, hold his fist to a 10-year-old, sit around in a white terry bathrobe in his briefs, a convenient shroud that needs no closure to obstruct malintentions, only a ratty belt that cinches in a moment's notice. I'll press on. What kind of man sits in his bucket seat across from me, eight, nine, ten years old, and glares furiously? The furious unpredictability. My father's rage, not the cold, calculating puppeteer, but the real person, the real Paul Barrow. Cigarette hanging out the window, the icy air streaming into the car breaking up that narcotic feeling of hot sun through the freshly washed windshield of the Cutlass Supreme. The cold air, just another iteration of the rage. Who would dare ask him to close it, to turn that handle, roll, roll, roll up the window? A request like that could very easily have resulted in a fist through the passenger window. All this tension impregnated with his rage. Fear in images that are shards of broken glass. The possibility of violence. How? Where would it go? And the guns and the drugs and the fists and the holes in the wall. The pissed-on mortgage bill, the sledgehammer, retrieved in a fit of rage from the basement. What would he do with that sledgehammer? If it were a true crime podcast, of course he would bludgeon us. But instead, he races to the basement. What is he getting? The ammunition? The guns? No, a sledgehammer from the workbench and back up the stairs. We were frozen. Why didn't we run? You know you don't run from a predator unless you're faster, and we weren't. I don't know. Did he look around and scan each of our faces before he stormed out the back door? A wood door? A moment to change his mind? Then the screen door? Another moment? What did he do before he hurled the sledgehammer like Hercules? or in his mind, Goliath, at the ridiculously tall, practically seaworthy, two-story shed 
built by him with the help of his woodworking father. A study in opposites, these two men. My father, mostly meek, self-conscious, body posture of a sissy, and grandpa, a large man's man, a navy man in the Second World War, the name of a Hawaiian girl tattooed on his arm, a girl in a hula skirt and a lei that danced for him when he flexed his bicep, Malia, a girl Nana hated. I'm talking about the tattoo, not the real woman. There's always a moment, a suspension of time before the rage and the decision to act on it. Now I'm speaking of my father. How I remembered that afternoon until recently was through my own field of vision, the perspective of me looking out the window, examining the dashboard, the wiper blade pitted, places to hide and escape to. Any abused child would recognize these exaggerations of sensory input, exaggerations to escape and, if necessary, hide within. Yes, a young girl can hide in a faded crack in a vinyl 1969 cutlass supreme dashboard. She can burrow her way as deeply as she needs to into the hard foam vesicles. These things are invisible to one who is experiencing life without a cortisol bath rushing into the brain and body. Yes, I was very good at magic. And by the time my father spit out the window and growled through clenched teeth, what the fuck is wrong with you, you fucking brown nose? Huh? Huh? Why do you have to be such a fucking little brown nose and tell your mother? I faintly remember feeling self-righteous, not outright defiant, but a nearly imperceptible sensation, not even an inner voice. This is at a cellular level. I'm right. You're wrong. You're a fucking liar. By the time my father spit out the window and seethed, you little fucking brown nose, you know that? Thrust the Cutlass Supreme into gear and peeled out of the Mammoth Mart parking lot. I was deep inside the foam vesticles in the dashboard under the sun-dried vinyl beneath the crack in the surface. I had burrowed my way close to the engine where it is loud and warm and everything else is drowned out. If you liked this episode and want to hear more, please consider reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Your support means a lot and helps get our show noticed by sponsors. Simply go to your favorite podcast host and click on rate slash review. From there, you can say just a few words or give us five-star review. It's that easy. Feel free to contact me with any comments via the link below. You can also see related content like photographs, documents, and links on my website, linked below. Enjoy the outro music this week by Raph Green, Flowers, from his recent album by the same name. You can also find his music linked below. Thanks for listening. flowers waited by the phone for hours but I never heard 
single word I gave you all my kisses Wrote you songs with all my wishes To have you near to me But now it's clear to see I wasn't done loving you Wasn't done. So how can we be through? Can we really be so So cruel. 